Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. Today, we're going to be discussing the book, What Democracy Looks Like, The Rhetoric of Social Movements and Counterpublics from the University of Alabama Press. What Democracy Looks Like brings together into productive dialogue the two major theoretical frameworks, social movement theory and counterpublic theory, that scholars of rhetoric and communication use to address the question of what moves the social. This work compiles the voices of leading and new scholars who are contributing to the history, application, and new direction of these two concepts, all in conversation with a number of acts of resistance or social change. The theory of social movements and counterpublics are related but distinct. My guests today are the three editors of the collection, Christina Faust, Amy Payson, and Kate Zitlow-Ragnus. Christina Faust is an Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Metropolitan State University in Denver. Her work engages rhetoric, power, and social change in a variety of contexts, including social movements, pop culture, and political discourse. Faust is aligning her academic labor in collaboration with others in and around Denver to build a network for environmental education, communication, and justice. Christina Faust, welcome. Thank you. Amy Payson is an Associate Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Nevada, Reno, and currently spends most of her time as Faculty Senate Chair and most recently been elected to represent all Faculty Senate Chairs for the Nevada System of Higher Education. Her recent teaching focus has been in deliberation and facilitation, where her students facilitate discussions following the National Issues Forum's model. Her most recent research has focused on academic labor, forthcoming conversation piece with Seth Kahn in Rhetoric and Public Affairs, and exploring the tension between the First and Second Amendment with the Bundy occupations and recent insurrection. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for having me. Kate Zitlow-Ragnus is a faculty member in the Department of Communication at Minneapolis College. Her researching Research includes projects on women's rights and labor rights in the 19th century, anarchist feminism, and the free love movement, and contemporary feminist advocacy against sexual violence. Kate, welcome. Thanks. I'd like to begin our discussion today with the start of your collection, which presents an overview of social movement and public uh, counterpublic theory um, from a variety of different scholars, uh, and ask you to provide a brief synopsis of the communication field's answer to the question of what moves the social. Uh, Christina, since your contribution to the collection addresses social movements most directly, I thought we could start with you and then perhaps ask Amy to provide an, uh, a, a kind of a thumbnail of counterpublic. And then Kate, if you could fill us in on the four major themes that emerge from the intersection of the two. That sounds good. Yeah. So um, as as we developed this project, um, one of the things that became clear to us in engaging 
these two uh, literatures that definitely had lives of their own independently, but also really intersecting each other is that they're like distant cousins. Um, and really the theories offer pretty like similar accounts of how rhetoric relates to social change with the differences being kind of matters of emphasis or what we would consider to be a realization of different possibilities within each term. And so um, social movement rhetoric really began um, at a moment within the the field of rhetoric, at least rhetoric within uh, the discipline of speech communication or human communication studies, um, as I think it used to be called at different points in its life, um, where where uh, scholars of rhetoric were trying to um, consider more of what counted as rhetoric, not only as like the best speeches or the best uh, written essays, the best arguments ever delivered, um, but what uh, what um, uh, Griffin uh, called in his 1951 essay in Quarterly Journal of Speech um, a plurality of voices. So how could the rhetoric scholar study a multiplicity of different voices that were nonetheless contributing to the same effort. Um, and from there, the development of the field of social movement rhetoric was also starting to engage some of those questions of what constitutes rhetoric, what constitutes speech vis-a-vis -vis violence, vis-a-vis -vis coercion, and this was joining forces with some of the development in sociology of theories that focused on the outgroup status of social movements. So social movements were considered unique collectivities that not only preferred to use um, symbolic means for social change, persuasion instead of violence, but they were also unique on the basis that they were outgroups that lacked some of the formal uh, levels of power and resources that in-groups, particularly governments, um, but also including um, business corporations, other institutions like um, religion, I suppose, too, uh, had. And so the study of social movement rhetoric um, in the field focused as well on the outgroup status. Um, how did ordinary people uh, gather up together to challenge in groups without recourse to the same types of power that in groups had? And that, that genealogy I think is, has been apparent within the study of social movement rhetoric even through some of the turns that it took in the uh, in the 1970s through the 1990s, with the um, rise of new social movements, um, often those identity-based movements such as um, Black Power or uh, gay and lesbian rights movements, um, intersectional versions of feminism or you know, classic liberal white feminism, where social movements were developing on the basis of identities and using appeals that didn't quite fit into the mainstream of what folks were thinking at the time, even uh, for outgroups. So new social movements. Um, I think that even the development of new social movements concentrated on mm -hmm how the new movements were outside of um, outside of even a social movement uh, category. Sure. And so then uh, we'll turn our attention. Amy, can you sort of fill in then uh, how counterpublics came to came to be? Yeah, and I just wanted to jump on what Christina had at the very end there to think about a genealogical project, because I think that's also part of what we were attempting to do with this piece is to recognize that each of these theoretical directions, if you're thinking of social movements, which developed more so in sociology side and continues to have a, a thriving um, area over there, 
versus publics and counterpublics, which we typically see um, developing much more so in political theory, for example, and then taken up more so in cultural and literary theory before coming over to rhetoric. Um, that how these different theories develop is important in understanding them. And I think also by trying to show that they are distinct in some ways, even if there are overlaps, is helpful for sure. us just because it gives us some nuance to what we're dealing with. And then I also think it's just terrible to kind of conflate them as being one and the same, because um, I think, again, what, we'll, what we tried to point out is that there are some different stakes in what we're sure. trying to attempt to do. So on the public's and counterpublic side, we are thinking a bit more about citizenship to some extent. We're thinking more in terms of democracy in a particular way, however we define it within our own context in terms of elective representative democracy, whether or not we are talking about it, um, again, going all the way back to Jürgen Habermas's conception of the public sphere in how societies transition from feudal societies to democracies in some way or extent. Um, and so instead of using terms like activist that, that we might use in terms of social movement, when we're thinking in terms of counterpublics, we are thinking about how we constitute and understand ourselves as a public or as a citizen group or as a particular type of uh, collective that doesn't necessarily mean that we are taking actions or organizing together, um, but that we have a similar identity and some stakes as far as that goes. Um, and so counterpublics really then are the turn to say, we do have this idea of the public and that making public opinion is what we're doing to try to influence our elected officials, for example, um, or to take some action through institutions to tell to define what those institutions are or how they should work. Um, and counterpublics are those to recognize that um, our democracy systems are flawed and that not everybody is included in that category of citizen in the same way. Not everybody is allowed to participate or see themselves as a citizen in the same way. Um, and so that's very different stakes than when you are thinking of collectives that might be gathered around an issue um, or thinking of their identity in some other way connected to a cause as we see with social movements. Um, and so I think, you know, with thinking about counterpublics and social movements, part of putting them in conversation for us is also to recognize that each of these theoretical traditions um, have what they can see, the possibilities, and also what these theories sort of close off those possibilities. And so the other piece of putting these into conversations and seeing which concepts overlap or are similar yet distinct is also to help them talk to each other. So for a social movement scholar who might be looking at something um, within our discipline, we have a concept of ego function from Charles Stewart, which sort of assumed that social movements needed to um, have some confidence in themselves to some degree to be able to have power to go and address the powerful. Um, and that's a little bit limited if we assume that one has to construct identities and think of themselves in new ways only for a certain instrumental purpose of getting a demand met. Whereas when we look at counterpublic theory, that constituting of yourself in the poetic world making that happens in that theorization, that is an end in and of itself. And so that is important to think about and expand our understanding of social change. So that's where I see that we can you know, have these theories speak to each other. Um, and I guess we're going to turn it to, to Kate to talk about the four problematics that we um, identified. But that's where we were trying to work through how do these theories speak to each other and actually can help push um, our scholarship further in both of these areas. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I just want to point out that that really is the uh, strength of this of your of this collection is the the degree to which that you're able to bring these two frameworks into conversation with each other, but still preserve their distinctiveness and, and the and the the ideas that they that they hold as unique. Kate, can you talk to us a little bit about those four areas of overlap? Um, yes and no, maybe. So <laughs> to be forthright, my, my background and training and I would say bias is probably more with counter public studies. So it, it really resonates with me a lot more than social movement studies does. Um, so I might turn that back to Christina or Amy. I know they have a lot more background in social movement studies to be able to talk through that in more nuance. Um, but I do want to highlight 
kind of before that of in our highlight um, something that Amy said about the role of identity in counter public studies, even though we don't want to ground the idea of public in identity. I think that was a major impetus to the development of counter public studies. Mm-hmm. If we look at folks like Fraser um, and Felsky and, and Warner, really, who discuss how um, folks have been excluded from the kind of metaphorical public sphere because of their subjectivity as it's been grounded in say, gender, sexuality, race, or otherwise, or nationality, that there's something about their personhood that doesn't fit with the idea of public, that their concerns, be they concerns about gender rights or racial equality, um, really tie back to special interests, um, which are not a public concern, but rather a particular concern. So for instance, um, with the AIDS project, right, we saw how AIDS wasn't seen as an issue, a public issue, until it seemed to affect the disembodied public subjectivity. When it was grounded in um, a disease that implicated gay men more than anybody else, it was seen as not a public concern, something that was impacting this particular community. So I think the the impetus to moving to counter public studies out of the public sphere, out of Habermas's conception of the public sphere, really centered on the inclusion of folks and their concerns as it relates to uh, public opinion and um, political decision making, and to ensure that their interests were included in those actions. Of course, counter public studies has taken you know a lot of turns along the way, but that has been I think one of the main um, turns to counter public studies out of public sphere. But that being said, I want to turn it back to maybe Christina or Amy to talk through um, kind of the relationship between the two. I know they, because they have a stronger um, understanding of social movement studies. Well, probably just to jump in with the four problematics and where we saw the overlap, I think what Kate was talking about is one of the, the areas that we saw overlap is this idea of collective identity. Um, since we, we've sort of talked through that. So on the social movement side and just from sociology, social movement theory, thinking about collective identity and in that we just recognize that people have to come together for a common cause and understand themselves as part of a common cause to then take action. Uh, but that looks different if you're talking about a social movement organization or people that are gathering because they know that they are going to go and protest in the streets or they're going to occupy a space versus how we can understand ourselves as being part of a group because we're reading the same things, we're having the same discussions, we're interacting with some of the same ideas, but not necessarily to organize to go out in the streets um, as, as one area. And then I, the other problematic that I'll talk about is that we also looked closely at rhetorical form and style. And this is the one that I think I'm, I'm most interested in in my own work, but just recognizing that when we're talking about social movements or what we understand in general public understanding as social movements, the types of things that we assume they do in terms of rhetorical action or rhetorical acts are the things that align with direct action or protest or demonstrations or petitioning or those kinds of rhetorical forms or purposes that are to, in many ways, to try to achieve some goal or demand, um, thinking in terms of strategies and tactics using that language. Whereas when we're looking at counterpublics, the rhetorical goals oftentimes are to constitute ideas, do poetic world making. Um, so looking at the forms that communication takes and the, the purposes of them um, can help us sort of think about whether or not social movement or counterpublic is better to understand those things. Um, poetry, for example, is a powerful form to think about social change, because how do you think outside of the constraints of your daily life and sort of what the reality and present is to try to think about a possible new future? Sometimes you can't just use regular old everyday language to do that. And so we see poetry as a a particularly interesting form um, to help get us to that next place and to think through those possibilities. Um, And whether or not we say that that poetry is, uh, you know, there's a, a a poet movement happening um, or whether or not that's something counterpublic, again, it would, I think, just be depending on what we're looking at. But writing a poem is has different meaning making and interaction with the public 
and people in general, people and activists, than if we take a stack of petitions um, as part of a direct action. So looking at how each of these theoretical areas have looked at and identified and figured out the different ways that rhetorical forms and the style works are important. Um, but probably I'll turn it to Christina to talk about the clashing of discourses and the ends of social change that we talk about. Yeah, sure. Um, the the clashing of discourses um, is sort of the starting point um, for many studies of social change, both social movement and counter public assume that there is some type of minimally friction um, that's taking place within uh, the talk and even in the action. Um, I think that we, we identified uh, quite a range and it's been interesting to revisit this particular problematic now with the hindsight of four years since our book was published um, but just to see how, you know, something we had written in the first chapter in the intro about how, um, I believe it was again, Lee Griffin in a, in a Burkean moment, uh, in a 1969 chapter described, um, the clashing of discourses as seeking the literal death of an adversary, or even the, I guess the symbolic death of an adversary, and to witness what has happened with some um, social movement activity, particularly on the right um, in the last four years, I, I feel like we're, we're kind of approaching that territory um, and actually in that territory. I taught my social movement class um, this spring at Metro and it just reflecting on wow. the pattern of, you know, vans driving into protesters um, that we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months and, and even more, right? Like the people's free speech rights being so disrespected that they will be targeted by people driving vehicles, um, seeking out the literal death of an adversary as an outcome of social change. That is a extreme clash of discourse that one might study through social movements or counter publics. And then um, the fourth problematic that we described in the introduction uh, relates, and that's the ends of social change. Um, so how do different scholars and advocates and activists imagine the question of what moves the social and how does rhetoric relate to what moves the social? Um, is rhetoric a practical tool for someone who's intending for social change to occur? Is it the glue that brings together people to imagine new ways of being and acting in the world? Um, is it an immediate force that will jar witnesses and inspire ethical relationships with others? There's all different um, levels of what we imagine for the ends of social change. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com 
and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Yeah, I, I, I was... I, Towards the end of this conversation, I hope we can talk about this. This this book came out in an interesting moment, and and so much seems to have turned upside down in the in the years mm-hmm. since it came out. That it mm-hmm. it you know you, going back to it, it it was almost like in some ways a premonition of what was to come, and then in other ways, um, I, and, and what you mentioned a second ago, Christina, I was. The last podcast I did uh, was speaking to the editors of a book on the campus carry movement, um, who talked about a student who had organized a protest called Cox Not Glocks um, that made use of a of a little wrinkle in Texas law that said it was uh, it was illegal to display sex toys, um, but not illegal to display firearms. Um, and, and tried to turn that on her head, on its head, but then, um, literally had to go into hiding, uh, for a period of time and was couch surfing on a, you know, people's homes all across Texas because Mm -hmm. she was receiving death threats, um, for, for her advocacy. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, a, a lot of this stuff is, um, you know, it, it's very real right now and it's very visceral. Um, so the, uh, I'm trying to think. So the next section of the book, you offer a variety of different case studies. Um, Kate and Amy, you both have contributed to this section. Um, and these bring the framework sort of into dialogue with each other and then um, sort of examining a particular moment or a, a particular example of things. Um, Amy, do you want to start by talking about your contribution to this section? Sure. So, you know, obviously in the introduction, we set up that we see that a social movement analysis should be distinct from a counterpublic analysis, even if those those areas are blurred. So my chapter was really like, Can I prove that point through through an analysis? And I was looking at the specific case example of Occupy Homes in Minnesota um, and the particular activists that were working in the city of Minneapolis to occupy homes to prevent homeowners from getting evicted. And so I was able to look at, again, sort of if we could neatly separate what counts as a social movement or what counts as a counterpublic to specifically say, the direct action they were doing in terms of occupying a home, petitioning banks um, and organizing folks, that is best understood through the language of social movements. Um, And so doing an analysis in that particular perspective, so showing that, you know, to clarify a social movement analysis is going to ask questions that maybe more towards that effectivity were they effective in saving that home? Were they effective in helping a homeowner renegotiate with the banks? That's a marker that we can evaluate and understand what's going on. But also to show that it's not just material change, that's sort of the ends of social change that we talk about as a problematic that we should be interested in if we are a social movement rhetorician. But we also need to think about the meaning making that happens as well. So because we're occupying a home, because this is an issue altogether in a community, it does bring up what is the meaning of a home? What is the meaning of community? And to recognize that the meaning of a home is very different for that homeowner versus the banks who were holding the mortgage or what the banks saw the value of a community was very different than what the community itself, right? People actually living together thought. So by somewhat taking in some of this idea about um, oppositional discourse and meaning making that counterpublics help us see, it actually adds to what we can pull out and nuance from a social movement analysis. And then the second read that of the same group that's happening simultaneously is to take a counterpublic focus, which if we think about counterpublics as spaces of discourse or information, to know that I, living in Reno, could somewhat participate and see myself as part of the Occupy Homes movement by being active and viewing the Facebook page. Again, this was early and before Twitter, Facebook page or, or website presence for the group, that I was able to understand what was going on, the stakes of the issue and understanding of the issue, and seeing that just as important as occupying a specific home 
that what this group was able to do is to counter misconceptions of the foreclosure crisis and that it wasn't a homeowner's fault, um, but that banks were very responsible in what was happening with people getting evicted, that by posting different stories and having that space of dialogue on Facebook, um, they were able to get a different story and change a dominant understanding about, which could lead to then material changes as well, with um, the Minnesota legislature passing a homeowner's bill of rights. So again, showing that we can have symbolic and material change when we're thinking just in terms of um, the rhetorical work that we're doing or the persuasive work. So that was kind of to show that these things can be distinct and we can ask different questions if we're looking at one area or the other. And I think in practice and probably, you know, as we're thinking about just movements that are happening today, um, for activists themselves to recognize the what's happening in these different dynamics is important as well. So you can't just get people out in the streets and demonstrating and think that it's going to be effective because you have enough bodies, but it's just as important to think through what story or meaning making that those that are watching from the outside or what's going to be shown on TV, that that's just as important as well to have some impact. Um, and so that's what I was hoping to kind of show the how these things work together um, but again, also to show that we're asking some different questions if we're thinking in terms of a social movement versus a counter public. That's terrific. Um, we're going to take a short break. Um, once again, you are listening to the education channel of the New Books Network. Um, and we will be back in just a moment. And we're back. We're, my guests today are... Christina Faust and Amy Payson and Kate Zitlow-Ragnus, the editors of What Democracy Looks Like. Um, Kate, I'm going to ask you a similar question to Amy, although um, your contribution um, takes a somewhat different turn. It does. Um, so I think one of the, the goals of my project from the book standpoint was to showcase how to use counterpublic studies to look through and analyze a case study and see what kinds of conclusions we can derive from that, how we can understand the actual protest part of it, and then also what does it tell us about our relationship to perhaps the, the public and the private. Um, so my, my project really seemed to um, Kind of directly call or require using counter public theory. So one of the questions being, you know, or a question that somebody might ask is, what theory best serves this project? Um, which one should I use? How should I use it? And this project really seemed to call or require using counter public theory as a framework because of the central focus on the relationship between the public and the private, as well as the intimate. Across counter public studies, and here. Um, I'm thinking about folks like Selsky and Fraser and Warner and Berlant and Brower. Counterpublic theorizing seems to really germinate out of um, advocacy for gender and sexual sexuality equality. So folks have really come to understand counterpublic studies from these types of protests. Um, so it's really fitting. So when you're looking at these kinds of things to use counterpublic studies, it almost seems to call for that. Um, outside of counterpublic studies, we had analyses of feminist advocacy, particularly white women's rights in the, um, the 19th century with Carlin Corse Campbell's seminal work on women's rights rhetoric. In that, in that book, she spent some time going through the public and the private and the relationship of women to these spaces, well, white women to these spaces. In the later part of the 19th century, we had the free love movement um, and then the women's rights advocacy in the mid to late 20th century. And all of them really center on this public-private divide, right? The, the mid-century um, movement in the United States highlighted that the personal is political. So kind of calling forth that language, um, which again kind of reflects the you know, public vernacular with or connects the public vernacular with the theoretical um, terms. So right away when I started looking at the slut walks, I saw this type of discourse reflected in what they were doing, um, particularly as they posed questions about body and choice, both on their bodies, 
through their signage and through vocally calling for it. Um, public's concern over sexual assault and rape and really kind of redefining what sexuality might look like for women um, in a more positive sense. So again, it seemed kind of compulsory to use counterpublic theory to analyze slow walks. Um, as I mentioned before, I have you know a bit of a bias towards counterpublic theory. Um, and my bias stems from, I think, my background in literary studies. That's where I began my academic career. Being introduced to counterpublic studies before social movement studies, um, I didn't really start studying social movement studies until we started working on this book. So it was fairly new to me then. Um, and then my research has largely focused on, on gender advocacy and gender rights, which again, foregrounds this public and private trope. Um, and I think this is really important, or I, I wanted to bring this up because our choices about what theoretical framework we might use to better understand a protest or a discourse um, can be driven by the case study or research question. But I think it's also due to academic history and training and subjectivity. Um, and these are, and it's worthwhile to really think through these choices. And I think the book as a whole offers us a lot of resources to think through why we might, why one theory might resonate more with us than the other, um, not to, um, uh, you know, ignore the other theory, right? We don't want to ignore one or the other theory, but really to kind of understand our placement within those things. Um, so in terms of my project or kind of back towards that, um, counterpublic theory really um, helped me to contextualize and characterize better the nuance of the slut walk, anti-rape and pro-sex arguments. Um, in particular, it facilitated my examination of how their argument for positive subjectivity was and in, is distinct from neoliberalism. That was something that kind of was eating away at me every time I kind of dug into what they were arguing for. How is this different from neoliberalism? Because it felt different than that. Um, so then counterpublic studies um, kind of permitted that exploration through, uh, you know, thinking through the public sphere and its um, kind of ways that it splits between the economic um, or private sphere and the ways that it splits from kind of the economic sense to the home. And I think this is, you know, Amy didn't talk about this, but I think this really resonates with what she was talking about in terms of what constitutes a home, um, right? Is it that economic value with it and our ability to participate in um, a capitalist society, or is it our conception of the home and what does the home constitute? Um, so bigger picture, I think um, using this theory as a framework for my project really called us to consider the role of the private sphere in relationship to the public, particularly in terms of public um, subjectivity and citizenship. And um, again, something that we might be thinking about today, um, I know Christina talked about kind of the way Griffin kind of hinted towards or was able to see um, or kind of forecast um, what was going on today. And as well, I would say that um, Berlant really kind of for, forecast that as well through counterpublic theory, thinking about how um, our personal is not just political, but our political is personal and how the public sphere has really become this kind of intimate public sphere in terms of um, how we engage with it and who we think belongs there based on our value systems um, and our citizenship. Yeah, I, I, th I think that's one of the, one of the important um, things that that when I've taught your your chapter that students take away from this is a sort of blurring of distinctions between what is public and what is private and, and where do we draw those boundaries or or um, how do we negotiate them um, mm -hmm. and, and I think it speaks a lot to this particular moment that we find ourselves in since the publication of your book um, the last section of the book, identifies some new directions for the study of social change. Um, and it just seems to me that the last four years have, um, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe them. Um, <laughs> th th they've really just sort of, um, like, it, this is sort of, this is where I come to it from. Uh, I participated in a, a seminar at the Rhetoric Society of America many, many years ago on social movement rhetoric. And it brought together, you know, senior faculty, I think, um, 
uh, Jensen was there and, and, you know, a bunch of, you know, sort of big names and, and junior faculty and graduate students. And it was so dispiriting because there was this sort of collective sigh, social movements don't really have any place to go. And, and now here we are in 2017, or excuse me, now here we are in 21, and we've just had a summer of, you know, the Black Lives Matter, and we've had a summer of Me Too, and we've had a summer of um, the anti, like, you, we, you know, I took a drive with my family the other day, and there's signs up in various more rural parts of the of the area um, to say unmask my children and and it, it all you know it's all in sort of in a big soup right now and I'm wondering um, I don't know what I'm this is this is sort of an open-ended frame just mm-hmm. to see if we can start a conversation about where do either of these frameworks go from here or what would we think differently about this if we were to revise this um, in 21. Well, I think in looking at some of the pieces that have been written in social movement rhetoric over time, I think the death of social movement studies was announced multiple times um, sure. over as many years. And and so, I, you know, in thinking about what you were talking about with that RSA moment, and if it's in the early 2000s, I'm assuming that it's around the same time as, as we were mm-hmm. invading Iraq back in 2003. Mm-hmm. So I think just repeated in history, just over and over again, is a sense that we don't appreciate the kinds of things that we can do for social change. And so even in the in that 2003 moment, I know that a lot of students that I talked to as, when I was an undergrad, they didn't want to identify as an activist because they didn't see themselves as an activist because what they were thinking social movements were, what activism was, was the mass protests that were anti-Vietnam or civil rights movement. And if there wasn't sort of a leader like MLK, then we didn't have a movement with sort of the, the perfectionist uh, quality that they have. And Tom Hayden actually wrote about this in relation to the anti-Iraq protests in that time, that we didn't have mass mobilization and we had more local mobilization or that there were women leaders uh, largely at that moment that the the mainstream media overlooked the work that was being done and people didn't think that it counted. And so I think, you know, one thing that it, just in terms of going back to seeing social movement theory and counter public theory and really kind of digging into all of the various ways that we've talked about social change, I hope that the book is still relevant in just reminding us that not everything has to be a protest to count as social change. And that, in fact, that just protests alone isn't probably going to do social change work. Um, I mean, we can even look in terms of why thinking in terms of counterpublic matters or thinking about the meaning making that happens matters today um, in relation to Black Lives Matter protests and somewhat of the, the shift that happened where the public, I think, was more favorable initially after George Floyd's death in some of the the mobilization that was happening and people in the streets. But as soon as just the slogan of defund police came up, then all of a sudden the public wasn't sure what to do with that. And so that shows just the extent that having to articulate and to think about how we explain things in from our counter public space to that public space matters in terms of how that discourse can work in concert with social movement activity in the streets, or might even undermine it, even if it's coming from the same groups. Um, So I think it still has relevance today, even though we might be looking at some different dynamics with the different groups that might be out in the streets, right? Certainly, I know that the history of social movement rhetoric has often overlooked um, right-wing or conservative movements. We have a little bit of that, um, but more focus on many times on the things that we identify as progressive, right? Kind of jump off of what Amy was saying, too. I think um, one of the reasons why we saw Black Lives Matter, as well as the Me Too movement, really click and resonate with a larger public and at different times, too. I think um, Amy's spot on to say the the murder of George Floyd really triggered public acceptance of Black Lives Matter. Um, But I think the reason why they were taken up so quickly um, is because these had been conversations happening in these enclave publics prior to that. So 
So when the moment came, they were absolutely prepared um, that this was something that they had been thinking about, articulating, deliberating, and they knew the ins and outs of the argument itself so that they could present it to that larger public. Um, so I think there's something to be said about, you know, the, the work that movements or counterpublics are doing when it's not in public, when they're doing the administrative or the idea making and the poetic world making, that matters. And it doesn't always mean that these approaches are dead, so to speak, but rather that um, there's that turn inward to see what else is going on, what is happening. Um, I think it's also important to think about the kind of relationship, and of course, with my background in, in the slut walk movement, um, the relationship to Me Too there. Um, and I think it's really poignant to think about why did the Me Too movement become this really public movement that everybody signed in on, but slut walks remain kind of more localized, smaller outbursts. Um, and I think one of the reasons is tied to that idea of the body and the way that we conceptualize the public as not the space for sexuality or for um, the presentation of the body or passion. Um, something that I think we're also seeing reflected in some of the um, pushback against the pride um, movement right now, yeah, um, sure. you know, about kind of taking the kink out of it. Um, yeah. So I think, right, the, the relationship between all of these of why Me Too took off, is it because there was already an underpinning of discourse? Did Black Lives Matter take off because there was work going on behind the scenes and people had been talking about it, defunding the police? We didn't have the discourse to talk about it, um, and it didn't seem part of that or, or um, right, it was an abrupt turn. So that kind of took us to, or kind of took us by surprise, and we didn't know what to make sense of it. Um, so people initially thought that meant, you know, no police ever, um, and not right. thinking the way that um, our public safety system works. Yeah. I, uh, and I think about um, how both uh, social movement and counter public lens could really help to make sense of what we've seen in conservatism in the last mm -hmm. five or six years. Um, some of the reflection that I've done, um, you know, both teaching the social movement class and just being, uh, being in a Biden presidency, I think has afforded a little bit more room for reflection for me on this point. Um, but just kind of looking back at the, very deep violation of norms and rules that I had come to expect in politics. And it was sort of like, wow, I'm a, I'm a social movement scholar and I still expect, you know, yeah. Republican politicians to abide by rules. Like really <laughs> um, yeah. just how my, my inner Habermas, I suppose you could say, um, and it's, uh, I, I was looking back at um, Dana Cloud's um, excellent piece where she analyzes the hate mail that she received, um, a piece that she wrote in 2009, where she describes how um, those that authored the hate mail, many of whom would self-identify um, as conservative really amassed their own identity as citizens by negating her identities um, as a lesbian, as a woman, and as a critical Marxist scholar. And that piece, I think, could, you could also point to that one as a really powerful forecasting piece. Um, Almost prescient. Yeah, like the the Journal of Communication Inquiry special issue um, from 2011 on quote unquote post race and um, really taking on the Tea Party and their attacks against President Obama. Um, so these things were happening um, through uh, through counterpublic. A lot of the the contributors to that JCI forum kind of work through counterpublic. I think part of what makes counterpublic such a powerful analytic is that it was ahead of the game on the idea of 
different forms and directions of power, not so much um, uh, constrained by the genealogy of in-group, out-group, institutionalized, uninstitutionalized, but seeing power as collecting in a lot of different forms and directions. Um, I think counterpublic was a bit quicker to uh, quicker to approach it that way. Um, and that might be why it would be have a bit more explanatory power for some of the stuff happening with conservatism. And it's a question I struggled with, you know, way back in the day <laughs> in grad school, um, where I wanted, I, I remember proposing to some of my professors wanting to study conservatism as a social movement. And they were like, eh, I don't know if that's a possibility because it's not yeah. fighting against oppression. And so the, the sort of vestiges yeah. of Marxism and that you, and, and sociology as well, that you must be an outgroup fighting oppression. But at the same time in 2021, I definitely see the importance of having that consciousness of oppression and movements are literally fighting against it right now. So what are the stakes of defining social movement without it, I guess? Yeah, it's funny. I can remember having the same conversations about um, wanting to study labor as a, um, as a, as a social movement and being told, well, no, it's institutionalized. You, you can't, it, it can't be a social movement because there are labor institutions. And, you know, once they've won a contract, then apparently the game is over. Um, so, um, I, again, this, you know, I, I, I don't want to suggest by that last question that, that there's anything in any way dated about this work. I think just the opposite. This is, I've actually had students um, who I've taught your work too, contact me and, and tell me how grateful they were to the, it gave them a framework to at least try to comprehend some of the things that were going on in the world at that moment. Um, we've just got a few minutes left. Uh, what I'd like to do is just ask you each in turn. Um, so what's next? Well, I can go in first since I think what's next has been um, my grappling with those more right-wing conservative <laughs> movements and, and trying to grapple with, I think, another terrain that we want to think about, um, especially as Christina was, was talking about, just the way that norms have shifted and how um, how easy it has been the last four years, I think, to construct an idea that some people are oppressed and that those same types of folks might use their understanding of our constitutional rights as the ways that they are justifying actions like insurrection. So um, I think importantly for social movement scholars um, or, or counterpublic scholars is to, to really take a look at the legal system um, and really try to grapple with especially how people understand the First Amendment. Um, the current work that, I, that I'm working on is really in looking at the Bundy occupations at um, at the wildlife refuge, as well as in Nevada here. And as we've seen, that was kind of a precursor to the anti-masking movement and also the insurrection and how, at least on the right and for mostly white male um, activists, if, if we can call them that, that they can have justified what they do as being protected, that the First Amendment protects them wholly and that the Second Pro Amendment protects them wholly. And that, in fact, they're advancing arguments that the Second Amendment is there to protect all other rights. Um, sure. and, and that understanding about how we utilize rights in terms of protest, in terms of activism, I think is new. Um, whereas before we were looking at, at the, the folks that we typically see as oppressed, still trying to say that what they were doing in confronting power was protected under the first. Um, we're now seeing that being turned around. And so I think that's the space that we need to to intervene, to, to think about in some ways, norms and, and our collective action in this moment. Christina, Kate? Yeah, I, I've i been um, really interested in uh, something that Robbie Cox wrote about in, you know, 2010 on what he called the strategic in rhetoric. So how do we identify openings within networks of contingent relationships 
and enhance the potential of certain communicative efforts to interrupt or leverage change within systems of power. Um, I think for a lot of my uh, students, um, and I see it in kind of young people that I've talked with uh, through um, some of the efforts around sustainability here in Denver, uh, just a feeling of hopelessness and a feeling that my actions won't really matter. So kind of questions of agency and how do we try to reacquaint ourselves with agency and continue to interrupt, um, effectively interrupt those systems of domination and oppression. Um, so kind of looking at case studies of what you could call success but also being drawn to some of the terrain of socially mediated social movements and doing uh, ecological work for the convergence of social media platforms with face-to-face -face activism. That's great. Um, Kate? Yeah. Um, so my, my work, I think it takes a, a direct turn away from Amy and Christina's in terms of the contemporariness of their their projects. Um, so lately I've been kind of turning back. A lot of my work is grounded in the, the late 19th century. Um, and lately I've been really interested in studying stunt girl journalism. Um, not the, I mean, the, the work that folks like Nellie Bly did is, is amazing, but really how she wasn't the only one doing this work at that time. And the way that stunt girl journalism offered women a, a place within the journalistic profession to do that type of work and to not be um, kind of sequestered to the, the fashion page, pages or the society pages, but they were able to do that investigative type of journalism because they put their bodies on the line. Um, so a, a project of mine um, on Eva McDonald Walesh is going to be coming out shortly in the Journal of Minnesota History. Um, Walesh was a, a stunt girl journalist in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and she would go into different factories. She would just kind of, she looked the part, she looked like she was a factory hmm. girl, but she just kind of sidled into the factory. She didn't actually work there. Um, but you kind of settle into them and, and, you know, sit next to some of the ladies and, and talk to them about their experiences um, to really highlight the conditions that they were that they were working in. And she used this very strong narrative approach, which is kind of similar to the feminine style, but differing in some ways um, to really draw attention to their conditions and what they were going through. Um, and how, you know, a lot of what they would say would bring us back to this kind of metaphor of family, um, that it was the purpose of the owners to take care of the women, um, and they were falling short of their call to do that, to be protectors. Um, so that served as a really strong catalyst for the labor movement in Minneapolis, that it you know, sure. shortly after she began writing, there became, or women started striking. So she kind of set the stage for them to do that. So um, that's something that I've been kind of dabbling into lately, as well as um, not in terms of kind of research publication direction, but um, kind of research practice um, is a, a focus on um, kind of inclusive and anti-racist pedagogies um, to really change what I do in the classroom to ensure that these are spaces where everybody can learn so we can close some of these education gaps. Um, and to really rethink how it is that we do things like teaching. You know, what is the purpose of a deadline? What does that serve? Given I love right. deadlines, but, you know, what, <laughs> what purpose does that serve um, to our students and how hard or soft should we hold them to things like deadlines? Or how do we kind of um, make explicit these um, hidden curriculums within higher ed that serve to, you know, exclude different folks because they don't understand what they're supposed to do um, or they're not able to tap into those ideas. Um, so, for instance, I was just listening to my spouse, who's an academic advisor, talking to one of his students today um, who's going to be applying to grad school, and he remarked that she hadn't even started looking at programs 
And right away it clicked of like, well, she doesn't know to start looking for appropriate right. Content, right? Like sure. she doesn't know the process. So things like that are, are um, kind of forefront in my research of how do I do my work better when I'm in the classroom to kind of do that, um, you know, on the ground in a sense, it's not, you know, social movement or activism, but I think there is an element of activism um, going on there to kind of ensure that everybody can learn. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Christina Faust, Amy Payson, Kate Zitlow-Rognes, thank you so much for your time today. And also thank you for this really wonderful contribution to really some of the most pressing issues of our time. Um, once again, that is What Democracy Looks Like, the Rhetoric of Social Movements and Counterpublics from the University of Alabama Press. This has been Tom DeSena on the Education Channel of the New Books Network. And thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.